let me be perfectly honest. My opinions regarding the Amazing Spider-Man two specifically, or uh, let's say that they weren't as strong until I started seeing backlash towards it, and then that kind of. Uh. But here's the thing: I rewatched it thinking maybe I'm slightly wrong on this one, and it only like reinforced my belief in these movies. <laughs> So no. <laughs> so there's that to go on. You know what it is I love about being Spider-Man? Everything. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Waffle Press Movie Podcast Retrospective. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today is a very different group of people because i will be splicing a bunch of different recordings about the amazing spider-man 2 together i want to do something different and weirder for for these retrospectives uh when i'm forced to change them up and i hope that this works and isn't a disaster if it's a disaster blame me not the guests but i'm sure it'll be great because i have a great round of guests starting with tom springer how are you my friend i'm doing very well today it is it is a good day. Hello. Oh, hello. is that Jillian Miles, the one and only? It got Christ alive, it's Jillian Miles. Uh okay, so I'm I'm Jillian. Uh I'm a 24-year-old trans woman from the United Kingdom. Uh I am uh very big on uh on on this kind of thing basically. I do a lot of a lot of media stuff. None of it's quite got off the ground yet, but I keep I keep hashing it out. Um Superheroes are kind of my bread and butter as a reader and a an analyst, I suppose. I just I just love those spandex fellows. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man series only lasted two films. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Two was projected by Sony, I should say, not anyone else in particular, but Sony executives to make a billion dollars. They I think they even said uh, they called it uh, being worthy of Avengers money. I think they wanted it to make Avengers money, and it. Did not, and honestly, that's an unfair hurdle to to get across any movie at this point. Um, but it's a little particularly sad for this movie because the first one has major problems. This one maybe has even more to talk about it. I'm bringing back from the first retrospective on The Amazing Spider-Man, uh, my friend Jack Godwin. How are you? I'm good. I'm back by popular demands, question mark? I'm... Off the bat, what are your thoughts on like this weird duology uh, corporate experiment to try to um, ride the coattails of other franchise successes? Uh, what, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on Amazing Spider-Man 2 at this point? Well, um, I think I'm going to come around and be more positive on the Amazing Spider-Man 2 than a lot of people. But still, I think together, these two movies kind of they're a cautionary tale um, for how, especially this one, this is a cautionary tale in how not to build a cinematic universe, if there was any. Uh, the, the actual movie, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a mess of stuff, uh, some of which kind of works, and a lot of it doesn't. Um, I think it, this doesn't... This isn't the worst of them. I, I'm still sticking with the Amazing Spider-Man being the worst of them for me, uh, and this this uh, this is second worst. And yeah, the Amazing Spider-Man movies. I was I was here for them. 
I, I'd heard a lot of, there was so much bad press around the making of the first one. And I could not understand it. I thought everything looked, you know, in stills, promotional stuff, everything looked phenomenal. And then they started talking about the untold story in the trailers when that started to kick in. I went, oh, oh, oh shit. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do this. Not to me. Not to, not to my boy Peter. And and they did it. They, they 100% did the thing I didn't want them to do, which made me really resent the first movie. I mean, I still have a soft spot for it. It has a lot of weak spots. It's far too fucking long um, by, by a serious long shot. It's, it's one of those movies that does just fundamentally does not have enough plot to sustain itself. But I don't hate it. And then the second one started to get into production. I was like, okay, the costume now looks amazing. This is the best costume we've ever seen in a superhero movie. And I stand by that. I still think it's one of the all-time great superhero costumes. Um, you know, maybe they're going to go interesting places with this. I didn't mind how Jamie Foxx looked as Electro because Electro has perhaps the single least coherent costume in comics. And uh, to do any, you know, to, to reframe that in a body horrorish way to make him stand out more against Spider-Man, I was here for that. Then, then again, and then it was really again once the trailers started to come out, and I was going, wait, this looks busy and garish, and I, I cannot, I cannot tell a lie. I, you know, I have. You know what? What we in the biz call a shitty brain. Um, you know, I got the brain worms. But this movie, I was the only person in the theater. It's the second time in my life I've been the only person in the theater. So I was like, Jesus, this isn't going down well, is it? And uh, I, I went into a several week depression. I genuinely felt an existential and artistic despair that this movie existed. I, I, I know that's ridiculous, I know that's completely out of proportion, but seriously, watching The Amazing Spider-Man 2 made me think there is no hope for this industry. There is, there is no you know, why am I bothering trying to make real, authentic works, you know, to, that make things that connect with people, make things that, that mean things to people when, what, when what, what's being made and signed off on is nihilistic, Randian garbage. So you liked it? Well, I, 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 they, they're kind of like the middle child because the Spider-Man movies really came out of the gate strong with the uh, Sam Raimi trilogy, um, and I think that's where a lot of people kind of that was much of the the turning point of superhero movies around that time. That's when we got X-Men, we got Spider-Man, and superhero movies were starting to be like good again. And I think people have such a strong connection to that that when these movies came out i feel like there was a lot of just pure rejection and then now you have the marvel universe coming in and i feel like these kind of just get lost uh in that sea as you know the weird middle child and i think that's unfair because i really think that these were a very strong attempt to create a spider-man universe um, and, and honestly, I, th it, it was, I, there's a lot of elements I like better than the Raimi trilogy. And there's even some elements I like more than the Marvel trilogy. Um, I, I just think it gets a lot of unfair criticism because of how strong Spider-Man kind of came out of the gate. I, I will allow that take completely. Uh, this is it. I, this is still my least favorite 
But I'm saying, like, this is a one-star movie, and The Amazing Spider-Man is, like, a one-and-a-half-star movie for me. And it's kind of... It might depend on my mood, personally. Uh, but there there are some things I, I, I like about this before we get into, like, the, the quick, broad structure of the film. Um, I like the look of the film. There's no, like, rhyme or reason to any of it, but it's shot by one of my favorite cinematographers, Dan Mendel. Uh, the colors really pop. The suit is amazing. I think we talked about yeah. last time a little bit how the suit sucked in the first film. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's much more visually interesting here. It's kind of perfect because it's a, this sort of blend of the the Raimi suit uh, texture, but then also it's a it's more comic book. It's more like the Ultimate Spider-Man one with the with the eyes are different. Um, I, it's kind of like the best of both worlds for me. Um, I, I have a personal soft spot, soft spot for the Raimi costume, but I don't know. I think this could be the best of them. Yeah, I, I really love the Raimi one. This one, there's a good argument here for maybe this one being uh, at least like top three Spider-Man suit because there are actually a couple really good ones in the movies. Like looking looking through them all, um, but th- this one really I think is a uh, the first one that popped. In a long time outside of i mean there were there's only the raimi films and these by that point but you know everyone got accustomed to the raimi suit because it didn't change until spider-man 3 when it became the black suit for a minute um this one i think everyone was like oh yeah that's cool like that's that looks exciting and it's like childlike friendly it's it's family friendly it's like yeah that that's a spider-man i'd want to like go talk to on the street and not feel like threatened like the amazing spider-man costume is like (laughs) i don't want to talk to that guy holy shit like it, yeah, that Spider-Man definitely killed someone, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he's chasing people down who are wearing sunglasses and beating them up. He's a creep. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah fuck, fuck that guy. Um, this this one, uh, yeah, is more. It's definitely more accessible, and I think it also in the build-up to the release of this movie, it felt like a. Uh, I don't know. It was a sign that well, this time they'll get it right sort of thing like we've learned from our mistakes look the costume's different one of my favorite notes from the production of the amazing spider-man is when the costume designer or rather the lead costume designer whose name escapes me uh but was a lass which is always great when you've got women in that area women working on costume because they bring in area elements and areas that just aren't touched on she said she designed the first one the one in the first movie to evoke the idea that he just swung through a web which is a great way to do it. That creates a sense of kineticism and movement. Um, but yeah, when they when they go from that and they've got him in this really skinny but you know well toned build in the first one, that's really evocative of the um, of the very early Steve Ditko art, where Spidey looked kind of freaky and weird. And then to go from that to a John Romita senior vibe in the in the sequel, where he's a little bigger and hencher, really great. You know everything behind the scenes sounds like it's you know you hear it and you go this sounds really positive they clearly are looking at what they're doing and how to create a story um it just completely goes to shit in motion that did that did excite me uh do you remember how many trailers there were oh yeah it wasn't it the whole movie <laughs> yeah there was definitely the whole movie all of them this this became a sony thing by this point where, like, they show the final image of the movie in the trailers. And I think it's, like, slightly different. Like, in the trailers, when he's swinging the the grate at Rhino, he's holding on to it. In the movie, it's, like, the webbing that he's swinging it from. Right. But it's, like, it's the same shot. And 
you know, we wouldn't realize it, but they would show the final shot of um, Spider-Verse. Uh, no spoilers for Far From Home, but there are images from the end of the movie. You wouldn't know. They they hid that one well. You wouldn't know, but mm. it's there. Um, Far so that's from home, like a thing. Far From Home was a weird one for me because there's definitely... And, and I, you see it in all these movies, but even when it's not a spoiler, sometimes you're watching something, you're like, the movie is playing this as a surprise, as a, you know, this is meant to be played as this is the first time you're seeing it. But they include them in trailers, even when it's not an element that would necessarily get you excited for the movie. They just kind of, it's almost like they're anxious for you to watch the movie. <laughs> Yeah, for real. Um, and no, I'm not going to give thoughts on, on Far From Home at this point, but I will say there are like 30 trailers, including TV spots, I should say, which is still like just insane. <laughs> um, but they actually did a pretty good job of hiding the bigger stuff. And that, that, that was that was nice. Um, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 also had like 30 trailers, though, and they were very bad at hiding things because the movie is kind of it, it talks about being Spider-Man like a uh, Spider-Man being a symbol of hope um, because that's what the Batman movies did. And so that's what these have to do also because they were heavily in- influenced by the Nolan Batman trilogy. Mm. I mean, if you're going to steal, steal like from some of the best, you know, um, it's, it's about time. It's about uh, fate. It, it's about um, the, the building the, the villains of the Spider-Man universe. It's, it's weird. It, it, it's a weird one. I, I like the opening though. Not not the, not so much the plane w- sequence, which is garbage. Uh, and yeah. I, I, the the untold story of the Parkers um, <laughs> remains a mystery because it doesn't actually impact anything at all in the movie. You could take out all the Parker stuff, and nothing changes, which is a big surprise. <laughs> And this is a this isn't a short movie either. Like you could make a two hour movie if you removed all that stuff. <laughs> that's fair. Um, I I think that like that's one of the issues I kind of have with the movie because it's it's a sequence I think would be better. The whole subplot of Harry or uh, yeah Peter's dad and mom and and Harry Osborne uh, or Norman Osborne. Uh, that whole subplot, I think, really would have been better suited for, like, a TV series, I guess, or something that it could have been, like, you got, like, little bits and pieces throughout the a long period of time and not over a somehow two-and-a-half-hour movie. Um, and that sequence opening up makes zero sense to me. Yeah, um... Uh... It, it was it threw me off when I first watched it. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. But I will say the sequence that immediately follows it with that bell chime and Peter Parker swinging through the streets of New York while he's like in a, in a car chase with a pre-Rhino Alexei Sestevich. That's the shit right there. Yeah, that's that's this is this is Spider-Man. So what, watching this movie, my my reaction was very similar because the first scene opens up and I'm like. Oh, I forgot how much I don't like this opening. I re- this am I going to hate this movie on this rewatch? And then it immediately goes to that that sequence of him like swinging through the city and that that chase. And I'm like, this it, this is perfect. This is Spider Man. This is what it should be. Um. So we open with 
the the Jason Bourne esque action scene with Peter Parker's secret spy parents, uh, the untold story. We were we're finally getting it in the beginning of this film, and I don't even understand the placement of this scene because I actually like the following scene they cut to when Peter Parker's falling out of the sky and swinging around in a chase scene chasing because, well, Alexei Sestevich. What, what that's, I mean, the reason that scene's there is because it ends on a falling plane. That's the only reason that scene's at the beginning of the film. So we... we it's falling planes are uncomfortably recurrent in this movie. That's like one of those little things that wouldn't bother me so much if it wasn't written by Roberto Orsi. Oh my but, yeah, God. Planes falling, out, <laughs> planes falling out of the sky keeps happening in this movie. And I wouldn't mind, but Roberto Orsi. <laughs> I, you know what? It didn't even hit me, the falling planes thing and the connection. Everything, like, everything I'm really glad the planes didn't hit you. Oh, oh boy. I don't know what it is about my podcast and 9-11, but it just, I just, it just can't comes escape. To you. It's, oh man, that's, that's bad. I'm, I'm definitely on a watch list somewhere. If you guys don't know, if anyone in the audience does not know this, Roberto Orsi is insane. He is demonstrably, like, off the chain bananas because he believes that 9-11 was an inside job, and not in, like, a casual way. Like, in a, this has destroyed his career way, in a, he calls people who don't believe in it coincidence theorists. Um, and, you know, everybody realized this around the point that Star Trek Into Darkness came out, and it was so obviously a 9-11 is an inside job movie in a way that pains me, just deeply pains me, to watch a Trek movie that is that, that. And that doesn't come into play as much here. But what does come into play is their serious obsession with the concept of destiny and predestination and the idea that events are going to count down to specific flashpoints in your life. Because that is literally how this movie opens, by zooming out of a watch, zooming out of a clockwork machine. Everything fits together. All the pieces come together to count down. Because this entire movie is just padding between... The opening scene where we find out that Peter Parker's parents were horribly killed in a plane crash. And the end, where Gwen Stacy dies horribly. That's it. Everything else is technically padding. Because that's it. That's all this movie wants to do is kill Gwen Stacy so it can get to the third movie that never happened. Yeah, like just how much does the movie improve if you just start with like that bell chime and the, like the fade into Spider-Man swinging around New York City? Because I really like yeah. that opening a lot. Yeah, it's um it, even as um people a lot of people are you know big fans of the PS4 Spider-Man game, and I think like a lot of the movements and stuff that just remind me of some of the swinging, yeah, in this movie they really nailed that aspect of it at least. Oh yeah, like honestly, this might be the best, or or at least the most fully realized. Uh, the the Raimi cam is is pretty spectacular, but like um the the ripples on on the suit as he's swinging around you hear like the wind like like it's that really gets you like in the moment i remember in this theater being like did they do it like is is this gonna be like really good <laughs> um and you know like no but <laughs> the swing's really fun yeah one of my favorite notes is that between movies, Webb watched back the first the first one and watched the Raimi movies again. And 
says has said in several interviews that he realized what was missing from the web slinging uh, in all previous films, including the first one, which is one of my favorite notes in the whole film. Like every time he's web slinging, there's this gorgeous, uh, you know, full surround sound design where you're actually getting the impression you are moving from place to place in the air. Incredible that no one had realized to do, realized that this was what was necessary before, but it works so well. I, I like the the goofy opening chase. How it's just like it's it's a total cartoon, uh, and it ends up not really meaning anything for anything else that comes after. Uh, apart from like the book ending with like because the movie opens and closes with him fighting uh, Rhino in his human form and then his, his robot suit form, which is yeah fine. But I I, I love the idea of book ending with just like oh here's a Spider Man villain that is not really essential to anything. It's just another day in the life of Peter Parker. Yeah, that, that that's a great idea. You know, it's kind of like the James Bond thing of opening I, like with a villain. I always, yeah, I always like it when these movies do that a bit more. Um, and I often don't think I often don't mind that much if they they don't have to tie it in as much. Like for instance, saying Winter Soldier, you got Batroc turns up, but then that is kind of related to the plot. Whereas like yeah, if you just drop in a lower tier villain that people aren't that crazy about just to just to introduce everyone to the character again you can have a lot of fun with that yeah uh also shout out to paul giamatti who is on cocaine for the entire filming of this movie oh my god that's not true yeah i should say i should clarify that's a joke i don't that's not true but like he's just all over the place but that's like exactly what i kind of want from him in this yeah i i the, you say it's not true, but I mean, I, I, I've gone to that joke myself, and I've had other people go to that joke. So it's definitely evocative of it. I mean, <laughs> he, he is completely insane here. He's acting. I don't know. In in a way, he's one of the few people in the movie who seems like completely aware that they're in a cartoon. <laughs> the one thing that does kind of like knock the opening down a peg is that they start. They start the infamous ghost dad images. Oh my god! Yeah, which which just don't don't work. And I, I guess this is like their attempt at doing an Uncle Ben type analogy, even though Uncle Ben was still in the first movie. Uh, I don't. It, it's very unclear why it's in there uh, at all to me. Yeah, I think unnecessary is the right word for it. I I don't necessarily feel like it's misplaced or that it's it detracts from anything. I just feel like it, it ultimately was an, an unnecessary addition. Um, they did they could have just kept him out of this entire movie. Um, I I do think it adds a little bit of of weight in the context of you know I think people forget especially because Tobey Maguire looked like he was like 40 in the first trilogy and Andrew Garfield, I mean, he mostly looks like a teenager, but definitely a late teenager. I think people forget that Spider-Man's supposed to be like a developing young adult and that he's dealing with all these things and the, the responsibility being thrown at him and, you know, to have, no father growing up your uncle gets murdered and now you your girlfriend's father kind of is putting these 
expectations of you uh, of you know keeping her safe and protecting her and and, it, and you know staying away from her it, it's kind of like you're, you're gonna start I think it's a way to represent what everything that he's trying to you know come to grips with but it ultimately yeah is probably unnecessary to have that Peter Parker there he is it's been 10 years what have you been up to I do some web design. Nice arm. It's just the wrist, just on the wrist, buddy. This is one of those things, and this is why my, this is a your mileage may vary thing, but a lot of the bad things in this movie, I end up finding kind of funny, which is why I think I might have a better time with this movie than some people, because every time, like, they, the, uh, there's the sudden <laughs> appearance of Ghost Dad, which happens maybe four or five times <laughs> in the movie. Every time it makes me laugh because it's so on the nose. And it's also um, on the back of the last movie fucking up the morals of that uh, whole exchange so badly. Yeah, it, it, it's this movie's very funny. And you know what? Sometimes there are even like cute little joke moments, but generally it's it's just hilarious that like, oh, you thought this would work. I kind of feel bad for it, but I'm going to laugh at it anyways, you know, um, yeah. especially in the, the last half hour of the movie. Well, oh boy, <laughs> stuff to talk about there. This movie, when they decided, oh, we need to do the Sinister Six and the Green Goblin again. We want to do the death of Gwen Stacy, which I will get back to because I have thoughts. Um, Harry Osborne, they have to reintroduce him his own personal drama and dilemmas reintroduce him to, to Peter Parker, establish their relationship for the audience, um, show what Harry's going through in relation to his father and the company, make him take over Oscorp and have him become the green goblin and then give him a reason to want to kill Gwen Stacy at the end. No, this movie had no chance. Like, yeah, he had he had, there was no way for him to do all that in one movie. That's that's a lot for a season of television. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But like, I think that's one of the things that I liked about the Raimi trilogy a little bit more is I feel like the dynamic between Peter, Harry, and Norman was better defined, and it wasn't just like you weren't just expected to go with it. It kind of like showed you like the, the dynamic of their relationships and how everything kind of led to it. Um, and then here it's kind of just like, Oh, all of a sudden Harry's back and all of a sudden his, you know, he's back because his dad's dying and then he's got to take over the company and, you know, let's make them reconnect and be friends again. And it's, it's, it doesn't really, it just feels like it's a lot being thrown into one tiny little movie. Half an hour goes How- by, and they're still introducing characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's and not how- like okay. they're making some, like, grand epic, like Lord of the Rings. It's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. It's just it's just a really long-ass movie that doesn't know what to do. Like, like Harry Osborn shows up, and of course, because he wasn't in the last movie, because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing in, with, 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 with the Osborn concept, he, is, he has been away, which is fine, except 
the, the movie starts to enter very strange metatextual or allegorical zones because he and Peter immediately have chemistry. And I don't mean like a friendly chemistry. I th like you read them without 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 any textual basis, but they because Dane DeHaan and 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 and, and Andrew Garfield are who they are. Yeah, you read them as as having homoerotic context. They read like what like that. You know, it's the rich boy. Rich boy comes back from a vacation, meets his old friend, and they've got a ke chemistry going on. Which becomes horrible. And here is one of the big ones. A, a guy on Twitter, I believe it was Andrew Allard, who's quite a well-known critic, pointed out that this movie, among many other problems, accidentally has an AIDS subtext. You know about this? Oh! So, Harry Osborne, who reads as, who reads as a, a, a rich gay guy, has a fatal blood disease. Peter Parker, who is fucking Spider-Man, I have to point out, refuses to give him a transfusion, and it's never explained why. Like, ever. But what it reads as is, I won't give you a blood transfusion because your blood is dirty. Oof. Yeah, and honestly, because uh, the other antagonist we get here is uh, Max Dillon, Electro, Jamie Foxx, um, who I think is actually a very good actor, who is... Uh, He's basically playing Edward Nigma yes. here, and I, I I don't think that's him. I think that's the direction. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I'm even okay with with them changing up Electro to be like an Oscorp employee. He's a Spider-Man fan who um someone who feels like they have no power, and then power is thrust upon them. I think that's a really great start. And even the scene in Times Square where like the the police start shooting at him, a black man in a hoodie, like that's powerful imagery that that you you got there. I think they should lean more into that. Uh, like, what I think if... you're giving the movie a little bit too much credit there. I agree with your assessment of that, but I, I somehow don't think that was entirely like their intention. I guess, unless they stated it somewhere. No, I, I, but... I don't, I don't think so either. But I'm saying like, like they had something there. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And uh, I think it would have been really interesting to see instead of just uh, Max Dillon going going crazy and, and shooting electricity everywhere <laughs> like what if he had trouble controlling it and peter parker and him have to like escape and then that's like their arc you know like you could still have him turn to a villain at the end but like maybe more tragic yeah you know like he he literally can't control it as opposed to just hating spider-man i i um i kind of thought that's where they were going with it initially uh i i wasn't like that's kind of where i thought that it it was it was actually going uh but it, i i really enjoy him as a villain and i really enjoy him in this movie in general i think that's one of the things they got right is they set it up because i, I mean it's it's predictable it's been done before the whole like you know former fan of superhero gets slighted by superhero becomes obsessed whatever but I think a lot of it is Jamie Foxx's acting, but also I just I think the movie did it right with him. Um, I I just like how they took it. He's a fun villain, but he should have been the villain instead of trying to throw a you know Green Goblin and everything else in there. Yeah, like it, I think it would have been interesting to see Harry not become Green Goblin here, yeah. but like have him still go like 
through his war with Oscorp for power, right? Mm-hmm. And then something along the way still makes him clock that Spider-Man's going to get in the way of like his career goals or something, something like, I don't know, there's contrived bullshit in all these <laughs> movies. And then have him use like Electro as a pawn, right? And establish that rival, that like uh, that antagonism between Harry and Spider-Man, but Harry and Peter have to be on good terms so Peter can keep a secret identity. That would have been a lot of fun, I think. Well, I, I think it's another one of those elements in this where on paper, I'm like, you could do something with this. Uh, the idea of someone who felt powerless uh, and insignificant becoming powerful is kind of can kind of mirror Peter in some way. And that can be, and, and I like the concept of in this fight, Peter sort of trying to calm him down and trying to avoid the fight from the get go. I like all that stuff, but just the actual, the way it's pulled off is, is just so confusing because it's not only that, you know, they're not, the, the execution isn't that good, but it's also that um, Jamie Foxx's character, like Max is just changing his mind and uh, his motivations with every other line. Every, again, everything in this Basically. movie is just, well, this has to happen so we can move the movie forward. It doesn't actually mean anything to anybody and it will not be important within 15 to 20 minutes of the actual film. I kind of get a, a sense in this movie that they knew there probably wasn't going to be another movie after this. I kind of feel like they they saw the writing on the walls with the Marvel. Uh, and I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, so maybe there was more to it. But like, it kind of feels like they were rushing to get a lot of things into this movie that they could have easily made this a trilogy and kind of stretched things out a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's... that's... That's probably true. Because, <laughs> I mean, the, the first movie didn't even set the world on fire, like, in the box office either. Yeah. You know, like, it did very good. But the fact that this one did only slightly less good and was considered, like, uh, a box office failure it speaks poorly about the state of the industry, for yeah. one. But also, just, like, that's... that's Ah, man, the system's, like, broken right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, But, like, I just feel like the... <sighs> Like it, that, it, that's how it feels to me. It feels like they just kind of tried to say, "Here's everything we need to establish in case there is no third movie." Uh, yeah. Oh, also, Electro is in so, this. Yeah. Oh yeah, Electro is the, like the main bad guy for a solid hour and a half of a two-hour, two and a half-hour movie. Um, Electro is the point where I realized this movie hated me personally <laughs> because I, I am autistic, right? Mm-hmm. I am I am pretty fucking autistic. Like and what makes me angry about the about Electro is that everybody went too far with him as a concept. They're like, look, he's a socially awkward, uh a socially awkward guy who doesn't understand stuff. He's you know, he's he's supposed to read as Hollywood autistic. But because Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman are weird, weird people, he reads as like needs additional support autistic he reads as like maybe went to a special school autistic he reads like a pity hire autistic and this is all horrific because everybody treats him like total shit like sociopathically monstrous behavior really clearly earnest good-natured but developmentally disabled black man 
what the fuck, guys? This needs a top-down... Most of the movie needs a top-down rewrite. It's so weird to me, though, because uh, Jamie Foxx, I think, could have actually been good for this really, like, flawed version of Electro. And I think there's another character he played named Max in Collateral, the fantastic Michael Mann film, which I also have discussed on a podcast. I'll link down below. Um, who's who's a kind of a slubby, normal guy, not really, doesn't he has aspirations, doesn't really uh, work towards them, but he's also not really allowed to even attain them because of just the structures of life and everything. And I think if Jamie Foxx was allowed to play Electro and with that character in mind, I think Electro would have been yeah. absolutely like that's how he basically is in that's how he basically is in the comics. He's a working class stiff who obtains phenomenal power over one of the most frightening forces on the planet, and is like, I can do whatever the fuck I want because he has no responsibility. That's the point. Whereas this guy goes on a killing spree because he's not happy. I guess. This is one of those big points where I'm like, this movie is randy and as fuck. I think this Peter Parker is very... He's not a moral compass. And honestly, I'm totally okay with it. I'm totally fine with a more flawed version of Peter Parker. Even the, the Tobey Maguire Peter Parker is like... He, he could be pretty selfish at times, as exemplified in Spider-Man 3 the most. But even the first one, you know? like The whole point of Peter Parker is that he's just a fallible person who got like a lot of responsibility and power and has to use it properly. And so I like the imagery in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 of Peter Parker, like, interacting with all the citizens of New York, but in his personal life, you know, he's a fly on the wall or a spider on the wall. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's interesting imagery, but uh, the movie needs to play it much better than they do. Yeah. I think. That's fair. Um, I, I mean, also, like, uh, I, I like... To me, the one thing I, I, I absolutely will defend about The Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2 is the flaws in the characters, even though from a, I guess from like a script point of view or a satisfying, clean audience point of view don't make sense. They make human sense, I guess. Like it feels a lot of the interactions and a lot of the decisions and motivations, especially with Peter Parker, feel natural the only one that doesn't is regarding his parents but what he does like even the whole like stalking thing even though they don't they should have played it off kind of as being you know creepy and messed up it feels like that's something that you would that he you know he would do it it, it just it feels like it, he feels like a teenager late teenager gr- you know, trying to cope with all of this stuff happening to him. I, he does at times. Like, I really do get the sense from seeing the scene, though, that he's almost playing different characters. Uh, rewatching this one is less egregious than the first film to me, but I don't... I have trouble buying it because the way the plot shifts his, his goalpost constantly. It's like, one scene, he's worried about the stuff of Spider-Man and Electro. The next scene, he's worried about Gwen Stacy, and he's frustrated about her leaving when she says she's going to London. Um, and then the following sequence is him starting to search for his parents. And I was just like, well, this is so much to keep track of. I, 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 I 
cannot keep up with what the movie wants me to keep up with and it's a, like information overload almost yeah that's that's the problem i think is there there's way too much that's happening that the, and like i said it really feels like they were trying to just shove everything in it for fear of of not not being able to uh, you know eventually so that that i can agree with there is a lot going on but generally speaking it just maybe maybe it's just the chemistry between uh uh, Peter and, and Gwen, but like it. Oh, hang on one second. Right. Sorry. Oh, we just had an earthquake. I apologize. Oh, okay, that's a normal yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh no, we're still going. You, you can keep talking. Sorry, <laughs> it's, it's safe. It's just, Are you sure? It's just chilling. <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. Oh, just a casual earthquake. Yeah. No, no, this happens all the time. Whoa, hang on. Nothing what I thought it was. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. My name is Richard Parker. I have discovered what Oscorp was going to use my research for. What is all this? The future. We have plans for you, Peter Parker. I think it's over? Oh my god. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh my god. It started off really strong for a second, and then it's, like, kind of rolling right now. Uh, okay. Okay, we're you're good. good? We're you good? sure? We're good. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, fun fact, I am about terrified that. of earthquakes. Oh, so. okay. Don't move to California. Yeah, no. Um, what do you think Peter Parker wants in this movie, like, as, as a whole? Because narratively, he wants to be with Gwen. He wants to be Spider-Man. Um, I, I honestly don't know what he does with his personal life. And I think that's a, a problem. The movie has too. Like that's something I actually wanted to see in the movie. Um, apart from, from Gwen and, uh, his home life with Aunt May. Uh, like, is, is he going to school? Is he working? But, uh, yeah. What, what, what does Peter Parker want in this film to you? I think he this this is a film about him just kind of trying to sort his life out. That's that's what if he just wants to be he wants to he I think he's figuring it out. I think he wants to balance everything and and try to have some sort of normal life where he's he's happy. You know, I I get the sense like he doesn't he doesn't really know exactly what he wants to do because yeah, he wants to be Spider-Man. But he wants to protect people, you know, keep, but he wants to be with Gwen, but he doesn't want to hurt, you know, put her in danger. Um, I, I, th I think that he's trying to figure that out, what he wants. Um, <laughs> um, he, he wants to, you know, actually, I'm not even going to try. I have no idea. <sighs> All the points we brought up last time about things that didn't work, they're all true here, I, I would say, um, especially the Peter Parker stuff. But also, like, they're, it's not so much that they're, they're trying new and different things. Like, like, let's say this movie was fully prepared to go, so like, to be made into a movie. The, the script was refined, and their take was that Peter Parker is not a moral compass or he, he lacks a strong moral compass because he keeps losing father figures in his life. Right. Like maybe he's not the most stand up guy, you know, he's going to make mistakes and he's, he's inherently less likable than the other live action Spider-Man we've seen by this point. 
I'm actually like cool with that. But you're right. They don't do anything with it. It's just stuff that happens and scenes are inconsequential uh, five minutes after they're over. I, I don't know if um, I'm just missing something here, and this might sound relevant, but I do think it's relevant to this point. But um, what, what is Peter doing like, in his life uh, for most of this movie? Like, is he at college? Is he working part-time? Is he, he mentions about getting work at the Bugle, but is he working there full-time? Is, he, is this just a side thing? Is he just hanging around at home? Like, what's actually happening with the character yeah he had no no that's that's totally um important to bring up right now uh after peter and Gwen break up i'll just hop back to this really quickly peter and Gwen break up after the graduation because he can't protect her or or he, he um the, the the reason of the movie is fine the problem i think is that the ending of the previous film hinged on that relationship trying to blossom anyways and then 15 minutes into this movie they just like no we're not going to do that after all because yeah. they needed a forced conflict and then peter spends the rest of the time stalking her while he's yeah. going around being spider-man like again like the opening it's a fun spider-man moment and then there's dumb shit that they put in for this movie that they have to tie to like the stacy stuff and it just doesn't work and peter why, why don't we see peter doing anything like like why 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 do superhero movies keep doing this a lot? Like like Captain America that works with you don't see a lot of his home life because he's a soldier and the whole like conflict is that oh yeah he doesn't know what home is. Um, Tony Stark you see a lot of the I I still think for the most part that character was treated very well by the majority of the films. Um, the CW DC shows I don't know if you're familiar with too many of them but uh, they're lesser works tend to have that problem too where they're like like there's a season of supergirl that i i find very interesting but so much of her story is just her being supergirl and they like don't even touch on her job life at all and the next season it's like this perfectly balanced uh conflict between her work life and her supergirl life and it's like this is great why why did you forget to do this the previous year you know like I don't understand why this keeps being a trend with superhero stuff. I guess because it's difficult, which I could understand. But like, if you're not going to do it, just don't have it be there. I guess. Um, yeah, I think I think with uh, it's it's more important with Peter Parker as well because he's he's not you know a billionaire. He's a guy who's struggling to make ends meet, and his uh what his alter ego is clashing with his personal life that's part of the character and you don't always need to go solely into that stuff but i mean in general i when they're showing months and months pass uh it's just unclear what he what his own wants are what is what his life is outside of gwen all you know is that he's stalking his girlfriend at this point it's, and then stuff happens to him <laughs> Especially since his the stuff with his dad doesn't amount to anything, because that's the only real thing he seems to be doing. I, I get. I don't want to sound like angry internet nerd. Like that's not my Peter Parker. Like it, it isn't. But it's also not any version of Peter Parker. And the fact that they can't commit to anything it, besides that, like, oh well, he just became Peter Parker because Destiny is. It, it breaks the character and it sends a really gross message, considering what hmm. the character stands for. It, it really shows 
that the I mean, yeah, it, it isn't actually Peter Parker. That's the fundamental thing. It is he is he is not defined by anything except that the characters except the writers didn't want him to be like Toby Maguire. So all he is is not like Toby Maguire, which ultimately means, as said, he turns into you know, he turns into fucking James Franco. He is just a James Franco character that happens to be incredibly charming because he's played by Andrew Garfield. I'll put one further. He's not just James Franco's character. He's Topher Grace in Spider-Man 3. He really is. He's, he's, he is like an inverse of everything that Spider-Man is. And yeah, yeah. So after, the, after, the, after this massive stalking montage, we, um, we find out that Gwen is still working at Oscorp, I think. Is she still working at Oscorp? I forget. I believe she is. I don't know what Peter's doing. I don't want to like derail the whole conversation because I could have a whole discussion about the ethics of this. But like, what is Peter doing? Is he going to school? Is he working? Aunt May is working very hard and she's struggling to make ends meet in this film. Is he helping? I... Peter Parker is stalking Gwen Stacy and that's all that matters. What an entitled little asshole. <laughs> oh my god, I hate this guy. What a shit, though. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we, we gotta talk about that, we gotta talk about that. Briefly, this is like one of the digressions that really adds into the Anne uh, Ranch, Ranch shit that this movie is all about. Like, Aunt May is working two jobs, at least, and she is doing this very specifically and, and explicitly. This is text. She says it with her face and her words. Because she wants to supplant Peter's mother in his mind. I, I forgot about the whole mother thing where she's like, uh, she says that he's, you're my boy, no one else's or something like that, right? Yeah, right. It's like, look, you can, you can get Sally Field to deliver that all you want. It ain't nice. It's creepy. It's weird. Yeah, poor, poor Sally Field. How much thought do you put into playing Aunt May? Not, not a great deal. Is that right? In other words, just because why? Because it's a superhero movie and it's an, frivolous. An, it's it's really hard to find a three dimensional character in it, and you 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 work it as much as you can, but you you know you can't put uh, you know ten pounds of shit in a five pound bag. So. Right. I guess I'll, I'll get back to the, the rest of the characters then. I'm not sure what Gwen Stacy wants in this movie, like oh. at all. Oh yeah, it is weak. I feel like she's having, I don't know, I can kind of understand, so much of the movie seems like she is on her path to uh, to go to, uh, she's going to Oxford, right? Yeah. Yeah, so she's going off and she's got that goal and she's heading towards that, but every time Peter arrives, she kind of just forgets and it all becomes about him again, um, which leads to, of course, like her finding out he's been stalking her which is apparently kind of adorable for some reason um and then even stuff of him like coming in and she's trying to have her interview or whatever and he throws her off completely and interrupts her to talk about himself for so long and it's played off as this really charming thing but i just the whole movie i'm kind of like just let her go like she, she she's got a life going on there and you're just ruining it like honestly, that would kind of be an interesting arc if Peter can't like define himself by anything else besides being Spider-Man and chasing after Gwen Stacy. That fits into the like unlikability 
of this version of Peter Parker. And then um, instead of killing off Gwen Stacy, like, yeah, what if it was just a story about letting go and living his own life, you know? Yeah, and so, that... like, when, when Electro's, like, destroying New York City's, like, power grid and, like, the planes could, like, start crashing into each other or whatever, like, that's so disconnected in the movie. But, like, what if it was Gwen on that plane and, like, his final, like, heroic act is just, like, ensuring her safety, like, off, you know? Like, go full Casablanca with that shit almost, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I did I did definitely think that because I think and in a way that would be a better way to adapt the comic book material because the actual the death itself is not I don't think something that you can really transfer into a movie, but him losing her, you can still have him lose her, but he loses her to let her live her life without him. After we discover the the secret dad, spider dad train car. Uh, and we discover that his father has genetically altered this, either him or the spiders. I can't, I can't remember <laughs> where um, only Peter would have like would have been given the the abilities of of the spider bite or the, the DNA, right? Yeah, um, this breaks the character for me. Yeah, in a lot. Like I'm generally not like, well, if it happened in the comics, I want to see on the screen. Like, fuck that. I don't care. Me, different mediums are different mediums but I do think that if you take away intrinsic things about Spider-Man he becomes less Spider-Man <laughs> uh, and Spider-Man's whole whole shtick is that he's just a normal slub who got superpowers and is like dealing with that fact yeah yeah I, I like I said I'm I am not a fan of the whole parent subplot and his dad being tied to everything and it's obvious that they were trying to do something different and that they didn't want to just rehash you know the father figure being uncle ben and that being his motivation and that being i guess the driving force behind everything but it just that whole thing and it's so uh there's a this movie is like two and a half hours long uh it's two two hours and twenty 21 minutes and the like there's a good chunk of it where this is all happening that should have been cut out like this should have been basically an hour and a half movie hour 45 maybe yeah like you it's a testament to the film that you can cut out all the parent stuff and end up not losing anything of importance at the end exactly uh yeah, that, that's really too big of a bummer. And like it, the the problem, the other problem is, it's like there's there's hints, like it kind of does like little flashes throughout the movie, and it goes back to him with the thing on his wall, uh, you know, the conspiracy board, and it, it feels like they were trying to do something, and then all of a sudden they were just like, oh shit, we have to like wrap this up real quick because then he was he finds the whatever things in the in the calculator. Like oh, just like yeah. all of a sudden, and then he and then he figures everything out, and then he goes down to the the, the subway car, and then it's just like it, it's this good chunk for like forty five minutes of the movie that just feels like the movie was literally like oh shit we have to like do something here, and it was unnes it was completely unnecessary. That's exactly just how the movie works, though. Ah, oh, like Peter Parker's upset. Gwen Stacy is going to move to London after they barely even. Rekindled, Oxford. like he's uh, gonna move to Oxford. Oh God! Uh, and, and 
then he just gets mad and decides to go on a search for his parents. And then he puts a bunch of little dartboards on a room or little, little pins on, a, on his room wall. And then it ends with him missing Gwen Stacy again. Then later he throws the calculator against the wall and then it kicks him off to the next plot point. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's unacceptable writing. But, but, but again, we have to make this really clear. I, I, I have never quite actually understood what the hell the mystery is in that that particular resolution to that particular mystery is so incoherent. Gwen Stacy mentions, sorry, not Gwen Stacy, Aunt May mentions that Richard Parker used to take a particular train every day. And then somehow Peter Parker finding hundreds of coins in a calculator leads him to find, and I'm not making this up, no, somebody made this up. Somebody thought this made sense for, for a, a, a renegade scientist to have in a subway station, a train that rises out of the ground and contains a laboratory. A train carriage. How did he get it? It's just, you know, everything that happens in this movie raises dozens of logistical questions about its world. It doesn't, it doesn't count as world building because it builds nothing. It, it undermines its own foundations. So Richard Parker was on the run. Where did he get a train carriage? How did he afford the train carriage? How did he afford the lab equipment? How did he get it? How did he get permission to put it under the subway? How did he build it? Did he have help? Like, where are the builders in this universe? Where are they? They could have told Peter his dad wasn't dead. Oh, yeah, because this movie nearly ends on the reveal that Peter Parker's dad is alive. That's the deleted ending. Oh, he, he just shows up. He will just, at the end of this movie, Peter Parker goes on a real mopey spree, which I believe lasts about six months. So there is a year of this movie, a year of time in this movie, where Spider-Man is either a stalker or moping. Yeah, and that's the other part where I was saying, like, it feels like they were rushing to get things done in case there was no third movie. Like, this is a plot thing that they could have kept for the third. Like, well, I mean, I don't like it in general, but I feel like the whole parents thing, they could have kept doing little flashes of it, and then the third movie had some big reveal and, and done it that way, versus this, it's like, three quarters of the way through the movie, it's all of a sudden just, okay, now we got to wrap the whole parents thing up and make this nice and, and neat and connect everyone and make this happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does, does definitely doesn't work. Um, but what no. does work for me, this might surprise people, I like the action a lot in the finale. Like, a lot. I love the way Electro moves. Uh, I don't understand his power set, but I don't really care. It definitely <laughs> is... It. it I cannot even begin to track how he works, <laughs> but I love the imagery of the electricity pulsing through the city. Um, I really love the video game style boss yeah. uh, cutscene where he's like Electro's on the side of the building yeah. <laughs> with his face. Like that's the shit, right? Like this is a comic book yes. movie moment right there. Like do more like that. That's awesome. It, it's it's fun. It's goofy, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's you know, it's it's one where the the bright colors and the oversaturation really works in its favor. Um, I think the the only like that that whole sequence is fun. Um, I'd say up until the Green Goblin shows up. I'm a big fan of cinematographer Dan Mandel, who shoots basically everything J.J. Abrams does. Uh, he worked with the late great Tony Scott on multiple projects, um, and I think he does a pretty good job here of, of lighting certain things and uh, capturing colors in certain ways. It's a very rich looking movie. 
it's it's rich but to it, such an it goes too far you know it ends up feeling like it's got a real it's it's like everything that people say about the schumacher batman movies which i actually love uh, especially batman and robin i'm here for that movie any day of the week um because it knows what it is and it knows what it's doing you know mm -hmm. but everything everybody says about those about them being headache inducing that's what i actually feel about this one oh because, i'm right there with you like i can't tell if it's a sh problem with the way they shot or the way they grade it but it's just there's no balance to a sh any shot everything's just bright and poppy all the time um you know which is so disorienting Oh, and it gets really bad in the finale with the, <laughs> we'll get to it, but the futuristic power plant with also the old timey clock tower. And it's just like, what are you even supposed to feel from this? Uh, whatever. Yeah, it, it does become too much. And I, again, I'm right there with you. It's like major Schumacher Batman vibes, but the worst parts of those, because I, I would say I'm at least a fan of Batman forever. And I have a soft spot for Batman and Robin. I definitely don't dislike those movies but they do feel a little bit much those are like the fucking Sistine Chapel compared to this movie uh, the finale is eerily similar to the Schumacher Batman movies and Spider-Man 3 um, although Spider-Man 3 has the at least the benefit of like allowing the characters to flourish like emotionally at least even though that movie definitely has problems like structurally and like and how it explores the characters um they're at least connected, like, thematically. Like, when Peter's fighting Electro in the power grid that is also surrounding the old-timey clock tower, um, <laughs> which, holy shit, like, what? Um, when, it's because when, uh, of the theme of time, if you didn't oh, realize, yeah. <laughs> yeah, power and time and, and, and comic books happen, so we have to do those things, too. Um, like, Peter just beats Electro with Gwen's help, and Gwen has to say that this is my choice, Peter, my choice, so he can be absolved of when she dies, just so we're all clear. <laughs> um, like, when they beat Electro, that's, like, it. And then Green Goblin pops up because it's his turn in the movie now. And then he kills Gwen. And, uh, well, well, he doesn't even, like, directly do it. He, like, Gwen just falls, and Peter shoots out a little web that grows a little hand, <laughs> and I laugh in the theater. And then just abruptly, when when her when she hits the ground, uh, it, that was like brutal, but also kind of just like hilarious given the context of it. And that's not the reaction I should have to something that's that tragic. Yeah, I. You know what? The weirdest thing about this is that e even with a little <laughs> with the little web hand. Um, I, I ended up liking this scene more the second time around. And I still think it's like, you know, f as foundations, a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and it, and it is done in a really incredibly contrived way. There's something about the way that entire scene set up that I actually don't mind that much. And it does kind of work for me, but it just doesn't feel like it should be in this movie. You wanted to be the hero. Need a hand? We can change the world. Then let's go catch a spider. I mean, we're basically done here, but uh, fi final thoughts. Uh, what does work for me again is the rhino stuff. Even the rhino suit being like a transformer, I actually don't mind it. I wouldn't prefer it, 
but um, I, I don't mind it too much. And I like the imagery of like, uh, or the idea at least of Peter Parker. Like, you know, he opens the movie being Spider-Man. Like every every day is like a battle, like literally. And then the movie ends with like, yep, just got to get back out there and um, and fight the good fight. You know, like whatever happens tomorrow, it's not it's not the point. It's about like fighting for the day that I like that. Um, I don't I don't care much for anything else, but I like that. <laughs> well, here here's why I overall like this movie. I feel like despite and, and this is also why I can understand why people don't like it, despite the messiness, despite the the Sony touch um, where it feels like a corporately designed video game in a lot of ways. There's a lot that it has going. I, I feel like the, the characters, particularly Peter Parker, feel human to me for the most part. Um, the the parent subplot unnecessary, but he as a person feels like a human. Like the the, the scene where he meets Harry, for instance. There's a, he he just feels awkward. Like he doesn't know what to do, but he feels like he should be you know connecting with him. And I think that's a great scene. It it, it shows him. Um, I think that the action is really good in this movie. I really like Electro as a villain. Um, I mean, I'm a fan of just goofy, off-the-wall villains, but I like him here. I like his motivations. I like the, the way they do it. That scene in the in Times Square is amazing. Um, there's a, the, definitely a, an emotional impact to the character. That I think that's got that going for it. It's It's... And, and I, it also, there's a lot of moments that remind me of Batman Forever. In this, it's just goofy comic book fun, and they're not trying to make anything. You know, they're not trying to make the Dark Knight. Um, they're they're not trying to. There's emotional points, but they're not trying to be a emotionally heavy comic book movie. It's just a lot of fun. Um, so to me, overall, I think. There's enough strong points where this movie really works. I understand why people don't like it, and I also feel like it was it, it had no chance. Uh, it's too bad. Um, they they were a really strong cast. Um, they were very wrongheaded, uh, and it's not like is this movie didn't cost. The, like the franchise, anything like it basically left it dead in the water. Like I think even before uh, Marvel got the rights back to Spider-Man, or at least to make the movies, that uh, it was like, yeah, we're gonna hold off on Sinister Six. Yeah, we'll probably push Amazing Spider-Man three back two years just to figure some things out. And it's like, oh, that's it's a death now. The film went on to make over seven hundred million dollars, and it was still considered like a loss for profit, which is just like unacceptable. Uh, for for any movie that that's like okay you know but um i think they spent like hundreds of millions on marketing uh they they really shot themselves in the foot uh i think the saying is they put the the cart before the horse which i think has never been more applicable than than here yeah. unfortunately um i will say that i i still really love the the book ending with the rhino stuff um i'm not crazy about the the, the citizens like championing Spider-Man from behind safety barriers when there's a robot man with machine guns for arms uh, <laughs> shooting towards them. That's a little, like, come on, man. Like that's the Schumacher Batman films didn't even have that. Like that's crazy to me. <laughs> uh, 
but I really like the image of Peter Parker being like, yep, I'm good to be home, like a Spider-Man again, and swinging towards the Rhino. That's that's a really good image to leave. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that the moment after the credits happen, Peter Parker is impaled by the Rhino. Uh, <laughs> the Rhino opens up his mask to taunt the police, and they shoot him. They trace back the equipment to Oscorp. The Sinister Six is never formed, and the universe returns to normal because everyone dies in this universe, and that's the end of the Amazing Spider-Man series. A weird diversion, duology. Um, do you think it was worth it to have these films? Not like, not like saying to like delete them from history or anything like that, but do you, do you think they're interesting enough to recommend to people? Uh would I recommend people check it out? Yes. Am I expecting everyone to love it and suddenly come around to it? No. I, I, I'm very understanding when people don't like it. But I would. I still feel like it's worth checking out. And if you saw it, I feel like it's worth rewatching. Yeah. Th- th- that's a hugely interesting point, though, about this movie, is that it clearly exists to res- as a response to the actual nature of the MCU. This is where I'm going to get really controversial. I am not a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think there are major standouts in it that are exemplary action movies or exemplary adventure movies. But as a whole, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a cynical corporate exercise. This is a movie that was made not by filmmakers, but by corporate mavens who looked at all of the corporate elements of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and went, Oh, we can do that. But there was none of that that little joie de vivre that every MCU movie has that makes you give a shit while you're watching it. It was oh, it, it's like it's like seeing the skeleton of the MCU walking around and drinking coffee and splashing coffee all over the floor and you're like, Jesus fuck, do I have to get a mop? And he's like, nah man, this happens all the time. Uh no, I <laughs> I think I think maybe in a on an industry level, like uh, right, people making superhero movies can look at this and think, okay, well, this stuff didn't work and people were very vocal about it not working. Um, I don't know if there's anything really about it that even the stuff I like, uh, I don't know if it's, if there's anything to, that, if there's anything good in this which isn't also good in, say, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies or the more recent Spider-Man movies. Um, it's just kind of both movies are kind of like clusterfucks, and um, I, and I just all I'd say is that if I'm forced to watch the Amazing Spider-Man two, I won't have that bad a time. Um, but that's not really an endorsement. That's just you know, it's not physically painful for me to watch. <laughs> yeah, not not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> um, but I, I thank you for joining me again. Um, this was this was the Amazing Spider-Man series. That's that for now. The next episode will be about Spider-Man Homecoming because I'm not going to talk about Civil War, even though Spider-Man's in that movie, but he's only in it for like five minutes and it's not important either, but we'll get to that. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming coming up next. Where can the people find you? Uh, thanks for having me. Um, uh, you guys can find me on uh, Twitter at J Alex G underscore. Uh, I also got a podcast called that nineties Spider-Man show. And uh, I also have like a little uh, dumb Twitter account called no context Spider-Man.
Um, but yeah, you can find all those on Twitter. People can find me on Twitter. Um, most of the links that are connected to me are on my Twitter. I don't want to talk about my um, my production company at the moment because everything we're doing is really, really early in pre-production. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's my main. That is my hustle. Um, and and uh, yeah, my Twitter is at uh, is is at Gillian B Miles. Um, my username at the moment is the deeply cursed uh, Elon Ripley. That is my username right now, Elon Ripley. <laughs> I just saw that. <laughs> yeah. I am mo- I am a monster, uh, and I exist <laughs> to inflict pain on the people who care about me. No, no, no! You're not the Amazing Spider-Man too. I can be found. Uh, my business account, let's call it, is uh, at Metal Loud on Twitter, and also uh, Instagram Metal underscore Loud, as well as if you want to hear the ravings of a person who loves the amazing spider-man 2 and super mario brothers you could also find me on twitter at turd carpley which is my personal account uh, of course you can Thank find you. me at the waffle press on youtube soundcloud patreon itunes spotify links down below i'm not gonna list everything ever again uh thanks for listening thanks for watching we have been professionally unprofessional i'm spider-man <laughs>